Let's open our Bibles to Matthew 5. Matthew chapter 5. Technically, the, the sermon was going to be on verses 13 to 16, but I'm borrowing some from earlier verses, so I will read uh, Matthew 5, 1 through 16. Well, you've no doubt heard about the accusations, the allegations of misconduct that are flying all around through uh, the celebrity world, um, through Hollywood, and also through the political world, on both sides of the political spectrum. Roy Moore, uh, maybe who's under some of the most heat right now, he's running for the U.S. Senate, and he's one of those who has faced mounting accusations. And putting some of that, some of those details aside, one of the the things that has interested me most is how people respond to these sorts of accusations. And so I was interested to see how Roy Moore defended himself. In, In a church last week, Moore said this, this is not just a battle for Democrats and Republicans and how they vote on issues. This is a spiritual battle. And then he went on to say that he would be the one who would be bringing the truth of God to Washington. Now, a perennial temptation for Christians and the church as, as at large is to muddy the waters in political and spiritual issues. And I wouldn't say, of course, that um, they're not related. Our faith definitely plays into how we think about everything in the world, right? And so it only makes sense that it has some effect on how we think about political issues. But what I would say is that there is a recurring temptation to perhaps use spirituality to fight our political battles. There's a recurring temptation for the church to use sometimes political means to try and somehow advance the kingdom of God. Maybe military might has been uh, a temptation for Christians throughout history. If we could simply attach ourselves to those who have power, if we could attach ourselves to those who have political might, well then we could usher in an age of riches for the kingdom of God. And that's not the way of the kingdom of God, brothers and sisters. Our aim is not to win America back as though America was an expression of the kingdom of God. What is the visible expression of the kingdom of God on earth? It is the church, not any government, not any political party, not a military force. It is the church. This is is God's people on earth seeking to spread the light of the world to everyone we can. Our passage for this morning speaks to this relationship between God's people and the world. How are we as God's people, the church, to relate to the world around us? And it is not by attaching ourselves to a political party or to a a military force or by some other means, it's not, neither is it becoming assimilated into culture. Our calling in the midst of this world is to be faithful disciples of Jesus Christ. Or to use the image Jesus uses, 
We are called to be salt in this decaying earth and light to this dark world. So let's look at our passage together, Matthew 5, 1 through 16. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons and daughters of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Our Father, we come to you with the firm conviction that this is your word. And so we pray that you would accomplish all your purposes with it. We pray that you would convict of sin and of truth and of righteousness by your Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning I want to give you two main truths from this passage having to do with the relationship between God's church and us individual disciples Uh, within God's church, our relationship with the world. How are we to relate to the world around us according to this passage? Two very simple points, but I think they will be helpful to us in thinking not only about the broader uh, church and how we are to impact the world and affect the world, but also you as an individual Christian, you as an individual disciple of Jesus. How are you to relate to others around you in your work? in your neighborhood, in your family, people who are unbelievers? How are you to relate to those around you? And the first point, the first truth is this. The church is called to be different from the world. The church is called to be different from the world. Jesus' disciples are called to be distinct from those who are not his disciples. So Jesus begins his ministry and he is preaching. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, right? The king has come. Repent and believe the good news. Turn away from your sins and cling in faith to this king who is bringing the kingdom of God. In the previous chapter, he calls his first disciples and they respond by following him. And even these images point to the fact that we, as his disciples, are called to be different, right? Salt is distinguished from that which, uh, to that which it is applied, 
right? So if you put salt on meat, salt is not meat. Salt is salt. You put it on the meat. They're two different things. Light shines in darkness, two distinct separate things. So even just how Jesus frames these images points to the distinction of salt in the earth and light in the world. I want us to notice two main distinctions uh, of what we see in how we are called to be different from the world. The first is this. We are distinct in our commitment. We are distinct in our commitment. We are committed to Christ rather than any other person or thing, rather than ourselves. Disciples of Jesus are committed to Christ, who is the King. So the disciples whom Jesus called, what did they do? They left their nets, their livelihood. They left their father who was, who was there with them. They, they were willing to leave all for the sake of following Jesus Christ. This is a being, this is what it means to be a disciple. You are called out of something into something else. You are called out of the kingdom of darkness. You're called out of this world into the kingdom of God. Um, we presume that there were others who heard the, the teachings of Jesus, the preaching of Jesus. We see this through the rest of the gospel accounts. As Jesus preached, some entrusted their lives to him, others rejected him, rebelled against him. There's this distinction between those who follow him and those who reject him. And this distinction is seen in our commitment. Is one committed to Christ as king or is one committed to perhaps themselves? And I've seen this uh, time and time again in people I've counseled with. You can, you can kind of tell in some ways. Is someone committed to Christ? Even if they sin, yes, they sin from time to time. They do selfish things. They get angry at their spouse. Where, but where does their commitment lie? Deep underneath everything else, where is their commitment? Is it to themselves and their own pleasure, their own well-being? Is it to some other person as the, this is the one that they want to serve above all else? Or is it ultimately to Christ who is the King? So how could we examine this in our own selves? How, have you examined your individual commitments lately and see where do these, all these other commitments point to my ultimate commitment being? There was a phrase that was, that was kind of coined in the, the 70s uh, during the Watergate scandal or after the Watergate scandal, a drama documentary um, outlining all the, the misdeeds that were done in the Watergate scandal. And one of that phrase that came about was this, Follow the money. Just follow the money. And that money will be a trail to lead you to the source of the problem or to, to those who were at the heart of this. And we can apply that to ourselves. That's one, one way of others of examining our own commitments. Follow the money. Where do you spend your money? Perhaps what's most convicting to me is when I think about you know, sometimes you'll, um, you'll get a bonus maybe or you will, someone will give you a gift and you'll have extra money. A, a, a hard question to ask yourself, what do I typically do with the extra money that I come into? This disposable income. And perhaps that gives us a glimpse of what it is that is at the deepest level one of our commitments. 
And, and as, as I look at that, I see sometimes a distinction from what that should be and what it actually is. Do you see that in your own heart? Do you, do you, are you able to recognize, perhaps, that either your commitment is not to Christ or that it doesn't match up in that circumstance? Well, there are other ways to examine ourselves as well. Consider your unbelieving neighbor, your unbelieving family member, and then ask yourselves, ask yourself, <clears throat> is there actually any difference between my commitments and their commitments? Do they basically look the same? And if they are basically the same, well, how do you account for that? Is there any distinction here between the follower of Jesus and the one who is not a follower of Jesus? Or does it just look the same? Is, is there nothing different at all? We are called to be distinct in our commitment to Christ. But second, we are, there is a distinction in terms of character. There's a distinction in commitment and there's a distinction in character. And we see this in the Beatitudes, what we often call the Beatitudes. These, verses 2 through 11, 2 through 12, they are marks of the citizen of the kingdom of heaven. This is what a, a, a disciple of Jesus and a citizen of the kingdom of heaven looked like. Now the term Beatitude was coined by the philosopher Cicero many, many years ago in a Latin term, which basically means the state of of blessedness, the state of being blessed. So Jesus is not ultimately saying, become these things. Here's how you should try to, here's how you should try to behave. Now I think that does flow from that. But first he's not saying, be these things and then you'll be blessed. He's saying, these are the ones who are blessed. These are the ones who are living in a state of Blessedness. He's saying, the citizens of the kingdom of heaven, of my kingdom, this is what they look like. And don't you see, just from looking at them, how different from the world these values are. They don't seem to make any sense at all if you're coming at it from a worldly perspective. Notice how different these marks are. Poor, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Versus what our culture might say, blessed are the bold and brash in spirit. They will get whatever they want. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And our world around us will say, life is all about rejoicing in the things that this world has to offer. This is the blessed one who enjoys everything that life has to give. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Versus, blessed are the strong and powerful, those who know how to get their way. They will be at the top of the food chain. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Versus, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after the things of this world. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive Mercy versus blessed are those who wield their authority to become great. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Versus blessed are those who simply follow their heart's desires. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Versus blessed are those who war 
and don't make peace in order to get their way. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven versus the good life, which for me would be the beach. Right? There's no opposition at the beach. You just put your feet up, you relax. This is the good life. And that's what the blessed state looks like to our world. So examine yourself here as well. Are you distinct in your character from those in this world? What is your character like? Do those things mark your life in this world? And it's important to note here, these things don't spring from us naturally. They don't spring from humans naturally. It is true. These are true. These are increasingly marks of one who has been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, to the kingdom of heaven. So how does this happen? How does one become meek? and mild, and gentle in spirit? How does one mourn with those who mourn? How does one become a peacemaker, one who is full of mercy and ready to give it out to everyone else? Well, it comes through the king who came down and exemplified these very things. Right? As Jesus is preaching this kingdom of God, he is the king who has come down. And he has not come like we would imagine any other king coming down from his throne. He comes down and he lays his crown down. He, he, he doesn't have the blowout of all blowouts of a birthday party. The day he is born, he is laid in a little manger. He is meek and mild. He doesn't, he doesn't gather up his army, amassing strength and power through military might. He doesn't attach himself to the political kingdoms of this world. He humbles himself. He is persecuted for righteousness' sake. He is accused of all kinds of things falsely on account of God. He's filled with mourning at the sickness and decay that he sees around the world. He is the king who comes down, humbles himself, and ultimately is not lifted up upon a throne, but is lifted up upon a cross. This is the king we serve. Because he, he died on the cross for his people. He didn't kill in order to advance his kingdom. He was killed to advance his kingdom. He was killed for our sins, brothers and sisters. He took the death that we deserve, that we should have died. He is the one who suffered not only at the hands of the Romans and the Jews, he suffered under the wrath of God for our sins. Do you realize that you are a sinner and that your sin is what put Jesus on the cross? And he did it joyfully for you, brothers and sisters. And now he calls you to repent of serving yourself and any other king and believe the good news of the kingdom. To rest in this king who has come for you. And then you will be transferred into the kingdom of God. And these marks of the kingdom citizen will become more and more who you are. This is your identity now in Christ. This is who you are in Christ. 
And he is making you more like him every day. But you're not saved to simply go on living as you had before. Right now you're saved in order to live for the king. You're saved in order to glorify God and give witness to the world around you. And that's our next truth. You could say that this is the third uh, C, distinction. We could make it that way, or we could say this is our, different, our, our second point. We are different in our commitment, our character, and third, our calling. Or the second point, I've really confused you here, haven't I? The church is called to be active in the world, is our second point. The church is called to be engaged in the world. Jesus' disciples are called to, to not withdraw from the world, now that we've been saved, but to live in light of the kingdom of heaven and to be engaged with the world around us for the glory of God and for the good of others. So there's these two Im- images that Jesus gives, salt and light. There are, I think, different emphases in these two images. There's a negative side and then there's a positive story. Now there's overlap, so don't get too... Uh, detailed in in this distinction but the negative is that we are called basically to to hold back and preserve hold back wickedness preserving in some sense this world around us by being salt we are to have a preserving effect so salt has many beneficial properties it purifies it flavors and i take it here to primarily be referring to its preserving effect upon the world So the idea here is that we are to be active in preventing decay and unrighteousness in the world. Just think about the world in itself. On a large scale, the world is not as wicked as it could be. And part of that in the sovereignty and providence of God is that his church is here in the world acting as a preservative, acting as one that that holds back the darkness, that holds back the wickedness. Some at more, uh, some at, you can see this more clearly sometimes than others. Uh, Sometimes it seems like everything is decaying all around us and yet things are not as bad as they possibly could be. God's people are present. And as an example of, of what this might mean, the church, Christians, should be at the forefront of pushing against things like racism and sexism. And they should be at the forefront of fighting against and raising their voice voices for those who are abused and mistreated for the lowest of the low, for those who are considered of no account to the world around us. This is what it means to be salt of the earth, brothers and sisters to be pushing back against this evil, these evil things. The loudest voice for the oppressed. All too often, the salt has become not very salty. We have lost our saltiness sometimes when we refuse to speak up for those who are oppressed. When we when we just listen in on that racist joke without saying a single thing, we are not proving to be salt of the earth. We're losing our saltiness. On a small scale, consider your own influence and how it guards against sin and wickedness around you. Kind of a funny example that I've experienced time and time again as a pastor Whenever somebody knows that I'm a pastor and I walk into a room, things get spiritual all of a sudden. You know, 
uh, language cleans up really quickly. And so sometimes I like to just, I like to go without saying I'm a pastor immediately. I want to see how things really are. I'm, you know, you, I'm not a, a weak soul. I can handle it. I, I want to see who you really are. There's no reason to clean up your act for me. And yet there is a sense in which my presence and your presence as a Christian is holding back the evil that could be. Maybe someone doesn't say a sexist or racist joke because you are present. And this is holding back the decay of this wickedness on that very small scale. There's nothing to uh, be ashamed about. That's actually a good thing, right? We don't want there to we don't want people telling racist and sexist jokes all over the place. There, there could be other ways which you are influencing others for the good and the glory of God. It's not a bad thing to keep others from sinning. It doesn't mean you'll change their heart, right? We have realistic aims about this. We're not going to transform the world by uh, holding back the uh, the decay. We're not going to change someone's heart because they change their behavior, right? Those things aren't. I'm not one who thinks that we are going to. The church is going to gain more and more ground on the world until finally it's just the kingdom of God here on earth. I don't think that at all. But that doesn't mean we don't remain faithful disciples where God has called us here and now, seeking to hold back the darkness and the evil around us. It's part of what it means to be a faithful disciple of Jesus, to be salt in this decaying earth. So the church has a preserving effect on our world. But he gives a warning. But if we lose our saltiness, it's worthless. Worthless disciples. There is a sense in which we can lose our saltiness. I've already mentioned by attaching ourselves to political parties or political causes. We could assimilate to our culture. So knowing that we, could, we should be involved in the world could cause us to, to compromise on our morals or our beliefs. And yet there is a, a stern warning here from Jesus. Salt without its saltiness is worthless. Christians, the church, our culture often knows us for what we are against, but they also know what we are for as well. And this is where this image of the light of the world comes in more. Now, again, there is some overlap, but generally speaking, this is the positive side of our engagement with the world. The positive side is that we are active. We're not only, we're not only active in preserving this decaying world, we are active in promoting righteousness in the world, showing the world what genuine righteousness looks like. A light that shines in the darkness. So a city set on a hill. You can't hide that. It's just, it's lit up. It's bright up on a hill. Everyone can see it. And it's a beautiful thing. A lamp that you light in your home. You don't hide it. You put it where it's going to have its maximum effectiveness to give light all, all around the room. Light exposes what is in the darkness, but it also brings warmth and understanding. Light often in Scripture refers to the glory of God, to goodness, to righteousness, to godliness. So we are, in this sense, positively promoting righteousness wherever we go. So for you who are you're a construction worker, how do, you, how do you bring this light of the gospel to bear at the construction site? And for, for, the, for this, 
these thoughts examining ourselves, I would point back to the Beatitudes. How do you bring the light with you to the construction heart? How about purity of heart in the midst of decay and darkness? What would it look like? It it would be really strange, you might think, for a man to display meekness on a construction site. What would it look like to be a peacemaker? Or if you're a public school teacher, how can you bring the light to bear on that school? And part of, part of this is recognizing all that's going on around you. Do you recognize that people are suffering all around you with all kinds of problems? And often they're suffering silently with no one who will care for them, who will take any concern for them because they're so wrapped up in their own responsibilities and cares that they don't have time to show mercy. What would it look like for you to be one who shows mercy? Blessed are the merciful. Or your neighbors, consider what suffering your neighbors must be going through, may be going through. Maybe they're, they're facing relational difficulties and struggle. Maybe they're facing financial struggles. I took part in a, a domestic violence conference a couple of weeks ago. Did you know that about one in three women face domestic violence and abuse? Think about all the neighbors that you have and who may be facing that sort of problem, that sort of sin and wickedness. So what would it look, for you, look like for you to be the light of the gospel in that situation? It's going to take developing friendships, first of all, with those around you. Engaging, right? You can't, the light can't just stay back and make any impact without engaging into the wickedness, into the darkness. So developing friendships with others, caring, concern relationships. And then it might look like mourning with those who mourn and weeping with those who weep. Blessed are those who mourn. Church, how can we, in the positive sense, care for widows and orphans? Isn't that what James says true religion is? True religion is this, to care for widows and orphans in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So the world knows we're against abortion. They know we're against same-sex marriage. So what would it look like for us to positively promote caring for widows and orphans in their distress? Supporting, financing adoptions, perhaps? What about, what about not just protesting the abortion clinic, but coming alongside a woman who is intent on killing the life of her unborn child and caring for her and not condemning her? What about in our own marriages, in our own life, supporting, striving to be the best husband I can possibly be Because not only am I against same-sex marriage, I am positively for biblical, God-honoring marriages where a husband is willing to lay down his life for his wife day in and day out, sacrificing like our Savior 
sacrificed for us. What can we do to shine our lights in the darkness of this world, to to lift up the light of Jesus and say, this is what righteousness looks like. And we will have to remember, we would do well to remember this light doesn't depend on us. It is a light which is not being generated by ourselves, right? It is generated by Christ, who is the light of the world. We don't shine our own lights. We are simply reflecting back the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, who is the light of the world. The reason we have any light at all is because God has shown his light into our hearts. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 and 7. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So Jesus says, let your light so shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory not to you, but to your father who is in heaven. So you might think here, wait, I'm supposed to let others see my good works. I thought I was supposed to not let my left hand know what my right hand is doing. Right. I I thought I wasn't supposed to let other people see my good works and then be rewarded in private by my heavenly father who sees in private. Remember, he has these commands. Do not be like the Pharisees who do all these things in order to be seen by others. And of course, the difference there is what is your motivation in doing these things? What do you hope is seen as a result of you doing these things? The difference is between doing your deeds in order to be seen by others and have them praise and glorify you and doing deeds in order to give glory to another. It's the difference between Muhammad Ali and a basketball MVP. Muhammad Ali says, I am the greatest, right? And I remember, I can't remember who it was, but an MVP basketball player who the announcer says to them, you had an amazing game, you had a double-double, you had the game of your career. And what does he say? I have to point to my teammates. They were the ones doing it all along. I can't, I can't take credit to myself. And there's a, a real sense in which Christians are always doing their good deeds in order to see, be seen so that God might receive glory. So we are like the, John the Baptist in a, in a famous painting who is holding the Bible in one hand or scriptures in one hand and pointing with this finger to the one who is hanging from a cross. Christians are always doing good deeds, but we're always pointing to someone else. We're not doing our good deeds to be praised in and of ourselves. We're doing them for the good of others and for the glory of Jesus Christ, who is the light of the world. So then, brothers and sisters, let us be who we are in Christ. Let us be the salt of the earth. Let us be the light of the world so that others might see our good deeds and glorify God in heaven. Let's pray together.